Today, as we look at this genealogy, we're going to be going through a lot of verses, but I wanted you to see not only some of the trees, but the forest as well. And we're going to be here today remembering how God had brought about the Messiah's birth from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David, just as the Old Testament had prophesied. And so today, as we go through the genealogy, you're going to see what we had just sung about, and that is, God is faithful and true. Even when human beings fail, God is faithful to bring about the promised Messiah. But in our application, we're going to be learning two things today. Number one, God uses unexpected people, even Gentiles and sinners, in his promises, and he grafts them in to the promises of Israel. Second, we're going to be learning that the messianic genetic lineage matters, but ours don't. And that's a very important message today for those that are wrapped up into racism, wrapped up into critical race theory. Our genetics don't matter. The Messiahs do. It's a very important message, I think, for people in our day and age. Now, with that, let's begin straight away for the sake of time. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see that Messiah was an Israelite. Listen to what Matthew recorded. He said, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Now, dear ones, last week I had covered verse 1, so I'm not going to recover that again here this week. If you missed that, feel free to pick up that message. But I want to go right to verse 2, where notice here, Matthew wants to show us that the Messiah comes from Israel. So he spends time focusing on the significance of Israel. Let me just point up a few things, get my pointer going. Notice he talks about Isaac. Remember, what is Isaac's name? Laughter. Why is it laughter? Because Sarah had laughed at the proposition that God could bring this about or that she really could have a child being so old. But God did bring it about, and who did... Isaac have as a son, but Jacob. And Jacob is renamed Israel. Israel means to struggle with God, and he has 12 sons, one of them being Judah. And so we learn in the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to come, if all the tribes of Israel, the 12 of them, Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Now, where do we see that? We see that in Genesis 49.10. And I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis 49.10. Again, chapter 49, verse 10 of Genesis. Now, as you're turning there, remember, this is where Israel, also called Jacob, is blessing his 12 sons. And in particular, we're looking at the blessing that comes upon Jacob, or excuse me, upon Judah from Jacob. And I'm going to be reading here from Genesis 49, 10, the Net Bible. I prefer that translation, the New English translation. Listen to what it says. It says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Now stop there for just a moment. What does the scepter represent? The right to rule. So this is Jacob's way of saying that the right to rule will not depart from Judah. And you have a synonymous construction here, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, the nation will obey him. Now, if you have the New American Standard Bible, which I use most often, you'll see that it says until Shiloh comes. The problem with that is Shiloh was only a town in the Old Testament. Now, Shiloh could be referring to a person, if you 
take that person to be the bearer of peace. And so that's why some versions leave at Shiloh. But through some manuscript evidence that we have at Qumran, there's a better emendation of the text that would lead us to believe that what's really being stated here is the phrase, to whom it belongs. Now, how do we know that? Well, a rendering of that is found in the Qumran scrolls. But more importantly, the identical phrase is used in Ezekiel 21:27, where in some sense there's irony going on that there's going to be a coming one, this, in this case, Nebuchadnezzar, to whom it belongs, who is going to destroy Judah in the short term. Ultimately, Ezekiel is making a play off of this promise in Genesis 49.10. But here's the point. What I want you to see is that phrase, the one who comes, that is certainly a messianic phrase that we want to have in our minds that goes all the way from Genesis 49.10 all the way through the entire Old Testament. Fast forward 700 years. Remember, Moses records these words around 1440 B.C. Some 700 years later in Isaiah 59.20, Isaiah records that the Redeemer is going to come to Zion, playing off this idea of the one who comes. Fast forward to Ezekiel 21.27, you see the same phrase, the one who comes, although in an ironic way. Fast forward to the time of 516 B.C., the rededication now of the second temple. And you have Psalm 118, this great Hallel psalm, crafted. And in Psalm 118, 26, it's messianic. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How do we know it's messianic? Well, one reason we know it's messianic is because Jesus himself attributes this passage as being messianic. He says to the leadership of Israel, Matthew 23, 39, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. What I'm claiming is that stems all the way back from the initial promise in Genesis 49, 10, the one who comes. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew eleven 3. I'll give you a little foreshadowing of something that we'll be learning. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, verse 3. And as you do so, you're going to see this narrative where you have John the Baptist who has that moment of doubt. Remember, he's going to be beheaded. And for a brief period, has this moment of doubt. And so he sends a messenger back to Jesus, and he asks this question. Listen to the question. What I want you to think about is if you and I were to ask Jesus who he is, we would simply say, are you the Messiah? Or are you the Christ? But listen to how John the Baptist asked the question. Matthew 11.3, I'm reading from the ESV. He says, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Notice the phrase is literally one word in the Greek, a participle. Are you the coming one? Are you the one who comes? Why is John the Baptist asking that question? Because it goes all the way back to Genesis 49.10. The one who comes from Judah is to be the Messiah. Now, What's interesting is, as we look at this text here in verse 3, we see that Judah's promise, the promise from Jacob to Judah that he's going to have the Messiah from his lineage, comes about through some intrigue. And that's because of this Canaanite woman, yes, a Gentile, named Tamar. Now, Tamar, if you remember the account in Genesis 38, dresses herself up as the harlot, seduces her own father-in-law, Judah, And yet, this brings about the messianic lineage. 
And what this shows us is that even though human beings like Judah and Tamar, yes, at times they can do evil, but yet God can use it. Just as Joseph said, remember to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's exactly what we see all the way through this lineage. God is able to overcome because he's faithful and true. Notice here in verses 4 through 6, we see the Messiah is going to come from David. It continues, it says, Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashan, and Nashan the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, I want to focus your attention here in the genealogy upon a man named Salmon. Notice the claim is that Salmon has a man named Boaz, a son, but it was by Rahab. Now, this Rahab, I think, certainly is probably the Canaanite prostitute in Jericho that we read about in Joshua chapter 2. And so, remember what she does. She has faith in the Holy One of Israel, so much so that she's willing to hide the spies and send the enemies in Jericho another way. But what's interesting here is notice Rahab and Salmon have a boy named Boaz. This must have occurred around 1400 B.C. That's when we had the conquest of Jericho. And yet if you go from the time of Salmon and Rahab all the way to the time of David, David lived around 1000 B.C., So that's 400 years. And what that means then is that Boaz, Obed, and Jesse are all having their sons when they're about 110 years old. Now, what does this mean? What I think it means is that obviously Matthew is skipping some generations. And he's using father in a wider sense, meaning grandfather and great-grandfather. Now, don't be disturbed by that. This is often what the Jews understood. If you were a descendant, you were a son— And if you went the other way, even if you were a grandfather, you were considered a father. Um, Sometimes we use language like that in our own day, where we'll talk about the forefathers of our nation. But nonetheless, we're covering huge periods of time. And at the end of this message, I'll show you, Matthew's doing this deliberately. It's all accurate. All these names are real. All the people are real. But he's skipping generations deliberately to give us three fourteens, and I'll show you the reason why I think he does so at the very end. So stay tuned. Don't leave. Okay, that's just like the commercial break, right? Don't, don't go away. All right, so now let's talk a little bit about Ruth. Remember, Boaz is this kinsman redeemer. You can read about him in the book of Ruth. And Ruth, of course, who is she? Well, she's also a, a Gentile, a Moabite, a woman who's destitute, belonging to the Israelite Naomi. And what's in so interesting is Boaz and Ruth come together again with some intrigue. Remember, to the Jewish mind, it probably would have made them blush some that Ruth was lying on the threshing room floor with Boaz. And so you have Tamar, you have Rahab, now you have Ruth, another Gentile, all included in the genealogy. And this leads to a man named Obed, who is the grandpa of David. Obed has Jesse, Jesse has David, and David is a very important man, not just because he's the king of Israel, but because God bestows a covenant upon him. 2 Samuel chapter 7, we looked at it last week. 
the promise as the Messiah of all the tribes, excuse me, families of the tribe of Judah, Messiah comes from one family, the family of David. And remember, David has a son named Solomon where the promises begin. David wanted to build the Lord a house. The Lord says, no, I'm going to build you a house. And Solomon is the one who does it. But how is Solomon born? Well, Solomon is born from Bathsheba, a Hittite woman, another adulterous relationship. She was married to another man, Uriah. So think about the women we've seen thus far. Gentiles, whether it was Tamar, the Canaanite, dresses like a harlot. You have Rahab, who was a harlot, Canaanite. You have Ruth, the Moabite, lying on the threshing floor with Boaz. And then you have Bathsheba, the Hittite, and again, an illicit relationship. Why is God doing this? Why is he using people like this? Why is he using Gentiles? And more importantly, why is he using such sinners? When we answer the question, I think the answer is that that's all that God has to operate with. There is no one that's perfect. There's none righteous, no, not one. And on planet Earth, God has to bring about through the lineage, the Messiah, through sinners. But God is the one who's faithful and true, again, even when humans are not. Now, at this point in the message, I want to talk a little bit about reconciling the genealogy between Matthew and Luke. And one of the reasons I want to do so is I I just want to hint at the issue. I'm actually going to do probably a separate message in a Sunday school because we can't get into all the details. But I want you to realize that in Matthew and Luke, their genealogies are different. However, they are virtually the same from Abraham to David. Remember, Luke goes backwards. But if you compare them from Abraham to David, they're virtually the same. However, from David on, they're quite different. For example, Matthew has the promised son coming from Solomon, whereas Luke uses the other Davidic son, Nathan. Okay, so that's right after David. Now, fast forward right before you get to Joseph. Joseph, of course, being the stepfather of Jesus, right, the earthly father of Jesus. Right before that, you have two different names as well. One is Jacob, and one is Heli. Now, how do we explain these differences? Well, there's been three basic takes on this over the years. There's more than that. But let me give you three ways of handling the differences in the genealogy. Number one, some claim that Matthew was following Joseph's line while Luke was following Mary's line. And so the idea would be Matthew is following Joseph. Why? Because the legal right to rule comes from the father. And Matthew's whole purpose is to show you that the Messiah comes from the appropriate lineage. But Luke's purpose is to show you genetically that he goes back to Adam, that he really is the son of God, the new representative, and so he traces Mary's genealogy. Now, the one problem with this view is that if you look up, and I won't have you turn to it now, Luke 3.23, I think Luke 3.23 shows us that Luke does intend to give us Joseph's genealogy as well. I think it'd be a very tough reading to read otherwise. There's another take on it, and this is the view that I would probably lean towards. That is, Jacob and Heli were brothers, perhaps even half-brothers. Well, Jacob died. Again, we're talking about the father of Joseph, who was the earthly father of Jesus. Well, Heli then would have took on the Levite marriage, and Joseph was actually therefore born 
to Heli. Remember the Leverite marriage, Deuteronomy 25. If your brother dies, another brother is to take up his wife and have children so the family lineage doesn't die out. Now, the power of this is then we don't have to claim that Luke is merely following Mary's genealogy. By the way, how many in here have ever heard of Julius Africanus? Julius Africanus was an apologist and a historian who did some very good work on proving that the three hours of darkness that came upon the land when Jesus died, that that actually occurred. And it couldn't happen through like an eclipse of some kind. Well, Julius Africanus, reported by Eusebius the historian, claims that he received this information from a descendant of James, the Lord's brother. Now, again, that's coming from Eusebius, coming from Julius Africanus. Take that for what it is. But the point is, Julius Africanus, a very fine apologist in his own right, claimed that he had received this information, and that was the way to reconcile the genealogies. The third view is somewhat of a variation of number one. That is that Heli, look at the the screen, Heli was actually Mary's father, but he had no sons. So he adopted Joseph, who is Jesus' earthly father, in order that he could have a son in the lineage. And therefore, that accounts for why Luke has Heli rather than Jacob. Again, number three kind of brings you back to number one. Now, at some point in the future, again, I'll be showing you the view that I hold to, which is number two, and I'll be doing that in a Sunday school. But I want you to know that there is a way of reconciling these genealogies. And if you ever come to what we call a paradox in the Bible, a paradox is an apparent contradiction, but upon closer scrutiny, it is resolvable. That's what you'll see oftentimes in the Bible. If you see a contradiction, it's because you and I don't understand all of the facts. All right. Now, let's go on in the genealogy from Solomon to Hezekiah. Matthew 1, 7 through 9, it says, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Now, notice in the beginning, Solomon is, of course, important. Why? Because he builds the temple. But remember, he has a problem with sin. He goes after foreign women that God had forbid. And so that leads to a split of the kingdom between Rehoboam of the south and Jeroboam of the north. Rehoboam is the king of Judah. Now, I want you to fast forward down to this king here, who's a king from the lineage of David named Hezekiah. And what I want to do is use Hezekiah as an illustration of how powerful God is to preserve the messianic lineage. And I want you, if you will, take your minds and think about being an Israelite, a person of Judah in Jerusalem, and it's the year 701 B.C. And one particular morning, you wake up 701 B.C. in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is surrounded by the most powerful army on the planet, Assyria. The Assyrians were the superpower of their day, led by one of the meanest men in all of history named Sennacherib. And Sennacherib had a leader that he sent out and a messenger. And this messenger on this one particular morning in 701 B.C. proclaims to all in the hearing of 
his words in Jerusalem, even the soldiers on the wall in Jerusalem, he says, don't be deceived as if your God is going to deliver you from us because everywhere we've gone, we've destroyed and sacked every city and we're going to surround you, we're going to destroy you and you're going to be left drinking your own urine. That's what you hear hear one day when you wake up. Well, there's a handwritten letter that goes from the Assyrians to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And it's a surrender request. And so Hezekiah takes the message, and he goes into the temple, and he prays this beautiful prayer of of deliverance from the Lord. He says, Lord, here it is. He reads the letter, and he says, Lord, in his prayer, deliver us. And Isaiah, by the way, you can read about this in Isaiah 36 and 37. And Isaiah the prophet reveals to Hezekiah that Sennacherib will fail and the Assyrians will not take Jerusalem. Can you imagine the most powerful army on the planet is surrounding you, ready to kill you, and you have to trust the Lord? The next morning after Isaiah delivers that message, Hezekiah wakes up and there's 185,000 dead Assyrians. All dead. And by the way, there are secular historians who verify and validate that this occurred. In fact, Flavius Josephus records a Chaldean, a Chaldean historian, Bessarus, if I remember his name, who says, yes, there was a great plague that came upon the Assyrians. Do you know that these things happened in time and space and history? In fact, you can look at Sennacherib's prism. It's down in Chicago at the Orient Institute where Sennacherib boasts on his prism that we have in an institute, I took this city, and I took so much loot, and I took this city, and I took so much loot. But all of a sudden, he comes to Jerusalem. And if you read the inscription, there's actually, you can go online and find out what it says. There's evidence that he never really took Jerusalem. Oh, yes, he locked up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage, he said. But after that, it was all over. Even the prism shows us that that was the end of the line. Do you know what happened to Sennacherib, this evil Assyrian ruler? His army decimated. He goes back to Nineveh, goes to the temple of his pagan god, and he's murdered by his two sons, just as prophesied by Isaiah. Wow. Why is this such a big deal? Okay, so what? There's a big battle. God miraculously intervenes. We've seen that before. The reason why there's such intrigue here, and by the way, this would be a great movie. Wake up, those of you in Hollywood. (laughs) This one should be a movie. That would be a little bit more interesting than the uh, Marvel superheroes that we've seen like 67,000 times, right? Maybe we need Brady Bunch Part 4. I think this would be a little bit better. Hezekiah is the descendant of David. If Hezekiah in Judah perishes, so the messianic promises are done. What does God have to do to ensure the Messiah comes so that you and I can celebrate Christmas and Easter, the resurrection of Christ and all of his finished work? He has to reduce the greatest army on the planet down to nothing in one night, and he can do it. Why? Because he's powerful, and he's faithful, and he's true. That's who he is. Now, Let's keep going now from Hezekiah to Zerubbabel. Matthew 1, 10 through 12, it says, Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. 
Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Now, I want to begin here on this lineage with Josiah. Josiah was a godly king. He brought about reforms. He brought the law of Moses back to bear in the lives of the people of Judah. He got rid of the high places and tore down the pagan altars. But after that, he has a son who isn't so good. He does evil in the sight of the Lord. He doesn't believe. He's 18 when he comes to the throne. His name is Jeconiah. Some places you'll see the same name. He has three different names, Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, and Quinea. Those are the three names that he goes by. But he does evil in the sight of the Lord, so much so that God places a curse upon him, and he ends up being the final king in the lineage of Judah prior to the deportation. Yes, Zedekiah is placed on the throne, but he's, he's placed in there by the Babylonians. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 22, verses 24 through 28. And the reason I want you to turn there is we have to wrestle with this curse of Jeconiah. Because the claim, as you're going to read here in Jeremiah 22, we'll look at 24 first. So Jeremiah 22, verse 24. The issue is Jeconiah is cursed so that none of his descendants will sit on the throne. And so some have concluded that is why Luke writes the genealogy he does to show how we can get around the lineage of Jeconiah, although Jeconiah is in that lineage. And so what I'm going to show you is I think that there's a better understanding. I think we as evangelicals have misunderstood the curse of Jeconiah. And I'm going to show you that I think it wasn't permanent, but it was temporary. Let me show you why. First of all, notice the curse. Start in verse 24. Notice the Lord. Now, this is Jeremiah 22, 24. The Lord says, as I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, now remember, that's the same as Jeconiah, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. Now, everyone stop there. Notice the reference to the signet ring, the term in Hebrew, kotam. Kotam, a signet ring. Why is that significant? Because what God is saying is, The signet ring was the most important thing that the king wore because on it he had a seal that he would press on the seals of his documents and prove that they were genuine and from him. It symbolized the right of the rule, the right to rule for the king. And so here, the Lord is saying, Kaniah, even if you were my signet ring, I would pull you off because you're so disgusting in your unbelief and in your rebellion. Now, fast forward down to verse 30. Let's look at the actual curse. Notice Jeremiah 22, 30. It says, Thus says the Lord, Write this man, again, that's Jeconiah or Kaniah, same person, write this man down childless. Some versions, by the way, say as if childless, which could be our rendering. So write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David, or ruling again in Judah. Dear ones, let me say that I think this is a temporary curse, and here's why. Certainly these words come exactly true. None of Jeconiah's sons ever come to the throne on Judah as as it existed. Jeconiah ends up dying in Babylonian captivity. But we do see in the book of Jeremiah itself, 
that there is a reason to believe that if, in fact, you would have later sons who were faithful who would repent, God would reverse the curse. We read about this in, for example, Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 8. So you don't have to turn to it, but jot it down. Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8, God promises that if he places a curse, and yet there is a repentance, he will reverse that curse. Well, there's good reason to believe that Jeconiah's curse was reversed and that later sons did come to the throne. And see, this explains then why Matthew is not embarrassed about putting Jeconiah in the lineage. To Matthew, the apostle who speaks for Christ, he's not concerned about this curse. And I'm going to show you a good reason why. Jeremiah 18 says, if you repent, there's going to be a reversal of the curse that's, an, again, Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8. But what I want you to do is fast forward to Haggai. Turn your Bibles to Haggai 2, verse 23. Haggai 2, verse 23. And as you're turning there, again, to Haggai 2, verse 23, I want you to remember when God put the curse upon Jehoiakim, he said, I'm going to take you off even if you're a kotam, a signet ring. Now we have Zerubbabel, who's the governor of Judah. And who is Zerubbabel? Well, according to Matthew, Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel, a son of Jeconiah. So how can Zerubbabel be in the lineage of the Messiah and even the governor of Judah in light of this curse? Well, notice the reversal. Haggai 2, verse 23. The Lord gives a great promise. He says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Notice the term signet ring, kotam. The signet ring was removed from Jehoiakim. Why? Because he was a faithless man. No trust in Yahweh. But God had promised in Jeremiah 18, if someone would repent and believe, he would reverse the curse that he put. Zerubbabel believes. And God uses the very same term, I'm going to put you on like a kotam, a signet ring. And the descendant of David through Jehoiakim is once again on the throne of David. And therefore, do you see that we don't have to try to jump through hoops that Matthew and Luke don't to try to get around the problem with Jehoiakim? Dear brothers and sisters, if Matthew wasn't embarrassed by Jehoiakim, why should we? Why should we apologize for a problem that Matthew didn't think existed? And I think this explains why he knew it wasn't a problem at all. The, the curse of Jehoiakim was reversed with Zerubbabel, who was a signet ring before God. All right, now, with that, let's keep going now from Zerubbabel to Jacob. Now, remember, Jacob is going to be, according to Matthew, the father of Joseph, at least legally. Zerubbabel, he says, verse 13 through 15, was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob. Now, let's focus here for just a moment. We're going from Zerubbabel around the 6th century B.C. Right at the end of the 6th century, we're going all the way to Jacob, who is the father of of Joseph. Now, here's the question again. Luke has Heli being the father of Joseph. 
I think the best reconciliation of that issue is the Leverite marriage. More than likely, there were either brothers or half-brothers, and Jacob probably died. So it was incumbent, according to Deuteronomy 25, for Heli, his brother or half-brother, to take the wife of Jacob and to ensure that he had children. Why? Because one of the worst things that could have happened to an Israelite man is that his name would die out. So do you see it was a blessing that Heli would take over for his brother so that his name wouldn't die out? So Joseph is probably born to Heli, but Jacob, he's just restoring his family lineage. Matthew records the official lineage. Luke is simply referring to the actual genetic lineage. No contradiction, simply a Leverite marriage. Now, from Jacob, of course, we're going to have Joseph. Joseph isn't the father of Jesus in a physical sense, but just the stepfather, an earthly father. Matthew 1, 16 through 17, it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now, the first thing I want to point out is notice the claim by Matthew is that it was by Mary. Notice it's Mary by whom Jesus was born. Notice the preposition by. It's a preposition of means. It's ek in the Greek. It's a preposition of means, meaning God used the conduit of Mary to bring his son into the world. Virgin birth. The first son from Abraham on, remember, was Isaac, miraculously conceived in a woman who was too old to have children, Sarah. Miraculous. But now, as we're going to read later, you have another miraculous birth at the end of the Messianic lineage, the Messiah himself, through a virgin. And this is God's end around the problem of original sin. This is God being true and faithful, even when human beings weren't, all the way through the lineage. Now, one question that often is raised is, why does Matthew focus on these three 14s? 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the deportation, another 14 from the deportation or the exile to the Messiah. Well, some have conjectured perhaps it's because 14 is a multiple of seven, and you have three of them, and they're doing some numbers that are often significant in the Bible. Three sevens, or three fourteens, 14 is a multiple of seven. Anyway, the point is, I don't buy that. I don't think that that's the point. What I think the point is, is that the focal point of this genealogy is three events. Two of them are men, one of them is an event. The focal point is on Abraham and David, two of the 14s. Why? Because they're not just important men, but they're men who received unilateral, unconditional covenants from Yahweh. If God goes against his word to either Abraham or David, he's a liar. And Matthew is showing that God isn't a liar. He brings about his purposes. But when you come to the deportation, why the deportation? Why the focus there? Because of all of Israel's history, that is the zenith of trouble. It is in the deportation to Babylon where the Davidic line is in jeopardy. More than in any other time in all of history, that's where it can be wiped out. And yet Matthew shows 
that God was faithful. God was powerful. God is sovereign. He can bring about the promises even though the Davidic kings as humans failed. Dear ones, you and I may fail, humans may fail, but Matthew is showing us that God was, as we sung about earlier, faithful and true. Sovereign and powerful to bring about the messianic lineage. Now, with that, I want to come to a couple of application points that I think flow nicely from this text. Number one, we should know that God uses unexpected people in his sovereign plan of salvation. This is something that we're going to see, not just through seeing Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, but later in Matthew chapter 8, we're going to see a Gentile centurion who has such faith, Jesus marvels and says, I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel. There's an unexpected man, a Gentile, who was far off from the covenants and the promises and the patriarchs, and yet he believes. So Matthew, in the genealogy, is is allowing us to expect that unexpected people are going to be brought in. That's number one. Number two, we must know that while Christ's physical lineage matters, ours doesn't. Our genetics don't matter one whit to God. Christ did because they was prophesied that he would come from a certain lineage according to promise. But where is it promised that only certain genetic people are going to be saved? It doesn't. Okay, so with that, let's look at our theme here for number one. That is, Matthew includes the genealogy here, I think, somewhat to show us that unexpected people are going to come to salvation. Now, who are some of these unexpected people? Let me remind you, Tamar, Rahab. Bathsheba, Ruth, all Gentiles, Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites. One dresses like a harlot, one was a harlot. Bathsheba, you have all of these characters in the lineage. And what it shows us is that, yes, God saves those who are unexpected, but it also shows us that, yes, God will even use the Gentile nations. Why? Because as God promised in Genesis 12, 3, The Messiah's work isn't just for Israel, but he's to be a blessing for all the nations. Let me show you a passage in the Old Testament where God showed that he would go out to the Gentile world and save them. One of the passages that I was moving to me was found in Isaiah 56.3. I did a whole, uh, it was a uh, paper on this when I was back in college. It was very moving as you read about how God was gracious even to the Gentile. Listen to what it says, Isaiah 56, 3. The Lord is giving this promise. He says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, meaning I'm as cursed as anyone could be cursed. Now, first of all, notice the foreigner. The foreigner is never to say that if they come to faith in Yahweh, that they're going to be excluded. God does not exclude people based based on their race. He won't do that. If you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what race you are, it doesn't matter what class you are, and it doesn't matter what gender you are. What matters is who Christ is, and that through his person and his work, you can have the forgiveness of sins. What's so fascinating to me in Isaiah 56.3 is why does he say, let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. And literally, nor let the eunuch say. He shouldn't say that. What's the issue with the eunuch? What's that all about? Well, to the Israelite mind, you could not be any more cursed than a eunuch. A eunuch was going to be a Gentile who would be brought in, a man, 
who was castrated into working for the king of Israel. Now, why would he be castrated? So that he would prove no threat to the king and his harem. But because he was castrated, he couldn't have children. And therefore, he was considered as cursed as cursed could be. You couldn't get any more cursed than a Gentile eunuch in the mind of a Jew. And yet, if they come to faith in the Messiah, they're blessed. doesn't matter how cursed your condition is here and now. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're blessed. Matthew shows us this all the way through his gospel by including the unexpected. Brothers and sisters, it's exciting to know that God will take anybody who comes to him on his terms by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's come to our second and final point. I think one theme that's very important in this whole narrative that we just read about is that Christ's lineage certainly is important. It was promised that the Messiah was to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, and from David. But again, let's ask ourselves the question, where in the Bible do we see that we should be concerned about our own genetic makeup? Is there a promise in the Bible that only a certain genetic group is going to be saved? No. But it is promised by God that the Messiah was going to come from a particular group. Where do we see this? Well, the Apostle Paul preaches this. Remember here, the Apostle Paul at Antioch, Pisidia, he's preaching about David at the very end in verse 22. And then notice his conclusion about David, that is the king. He says in Acts 13, 23, from the descendants, now stop there, the descendants literally is the seed. Literally, remember, think about the seed promise. The seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. That's the first promise in the entire Bible, Genesis 3, 15. So from the seed of this man, which man? David, that's, what he, that's who he's just talking about. From the seed of this man, David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Do you see why Christ's genetics matter? Because God gave a promise. He's going to come from Abraham. He's going to come from Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and he did it. He brought it about. But show me the verse in the entire Scripture, in all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, where God says, I'm only going to save a certain genetic group. It doesn't happen. In America, Marxism is the new dominant religion. So dominant now that they have false religious teachings like critical race theory being taught in the schools. Let me explain where critical race theory comes from. One of the men who was behind it in the 1930s and 40s was a man named Herbert Marcuse. Herbert Marcuse was a Marxist. When he came to the United States, he and others saw that in the United States, the Marxist dream of having a divide and a battle between the haves and the have-nots was not going to happen. Why? Because the business owner, the have, bourgeoisie, was getting along too well with the have-not, the worker, the proletariat. So the Marxist said, let's create a division. And what we're going to do to create the division is through race, class, gender. Race, class, gender. They're going to beat Americans into submission and to be antagonistic with one another through that. Critical race theory seeks to divide people along racial lines, declaring something that they can't know, namely that all people who are born white are racist, which, by the way, is a violation of one of the commandments of God. Thou shall not bear false witness. 
How can they know that? Notice that those who claim that all white people are born racist are claiming to know the heart of men, something that God alone knows. They're usurping God who alone is the knower of the heart. But third, they're also lining up with Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren. Bearing false witness, usurping God as the heart knower alone, and accusing the brother with Satan. That's what CRT, it's satanic. And what does God say to the issue of race? There's a very clear passage that addresses it. This passage hit me like a thunderbolt. I've read it hundreds of times. But I thought of the Marxist like Marcuse who says race, class, gender. We're going to divide them all, race, class, gender. Notice Paul addresses the issue in Galatians 3.28 in order. There is neither Jew nor Greek, he says. There's your race. There's your race. There's no, it doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. By the way, those are the only two categories that were important to the Apostle Paul, who was a personal spokesman for Jesus Christ. You're either Jew or Greek. You're either Jew or Gentile. That doesn't matter. There's your race. Doesn't matter. There is neither slave nor free. There's your class. The spokesman for Jesus Christ says it doesn't matter. There is neither male nor female. There's your gender. And by the way, there's only two. And it doesn't matter. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. God's critical race theory program is that your race isn't critical. Jesus Christ was. And if you're going to focus your entire life on beating people, browbeating them according to their race, you're doing evil before God, you're bearing false witness, you're usurping God as heart knower alone, and you're lining up with Satan who is the accuser of the brethren. If you're teaching CRT, you're doing evil, you need to repent. You're either going to follow CRT and the Marxist, or you're going to follow Galatians 3.28 and the teachings of Christ. What we learn today through the lineage of the Messiah and his genealogy is his genealogy mattered a whole, bu- a whole bunch. But ours doesn't matter one bit. And that's a message that we, I think, need to take to the world. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the power and the sovereignty and the love and the grace that you had displayed for bringing about your Messiah through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. We thank you, Lord, for your love that you graft in unworthy people into your tree, that you use people that the world would reject by bringing them to faith in your Son. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that in our world we'd be people that would be bold in giving the gospel and the remedy to so many of our problems, which is your word, that people that we have access to and connections with, that we would have opportunity to proclaim the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ by faith in him. I pray, Heavenly Father, for my dear brothers and sisters. I pray for their perseverance. I pray as we continue to learn Matthew and 1 Corinthians and Acts and Proverbs and the scriptures, church history as Dane is teaching it, Lord, that you would use these things to enable us to persevere until that day you come for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.